going on 14. Hello, everybody, and welcome to 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And at some point, all the ducks and podcast fans will look up and shout, Make a Howard the Duck episode. And I'll look down and whisper, Not until they remake it. God damn it, I got vodka in my nose now. <laughs> I, I will simply say no. No. <laughs> All right. For some of you, that totally triggered off what we're talking about this week. Yeah. Re- uh, yeah other people are really confused. Yeah. For about some the- people are just triggered. No, they're doing a podcast. They're doing a duck show. Great. Uh, we're doing um, Watchmen, uh, the graphic novel, the movie, and the most recent uh, HBO show. Curious to see how this is all going to go. Watchmen. Who watches the Watchmen? We do. Why does your face do that? Got human bean juice. <laughs> that line always sticks with me too. I know, right? <laughs> that bean juice. Yeah, human bean juice. If you like being juiced, you might like the shows on the Podcast Collective. Ah. I Am Salt Lake. The Dog and Deuce Show. Mom and the New Dad. And, of course, the Rad Dad Radio Hour. Big Rock and the Mountain. (laughs) Yes, if you're looking for some more of this, we are at iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com. You can also find us on Stitcher and where else are we? iHeartRadio. I am. All over the freaking place. In fact, we're in your closet right now watching you. We see you. You dirty, dirty thing. I like it. If you'd like to call the police on us, we're at uh, <laughs> 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Again? Yeah. Find us on Discord. We chat there. Oh. Just Google us. Yeah. You'll find us. Don't don't be taken aback by the grandma podcasts that are out there attempting to be us like transmorphers to the Transformers and all that. We are not. We are the only 40 going on 14. Less than meets the eye. <laughs> on that note, I think it's about that time. If you get us for your grandchild, they're just going to be disappointed. Oh. This week in music. Movies and TV. And sports. All right, so this week we are going with September 15th, 1986, the release of The Watchmen. This is actually the first comic that came out that day, not the graphic. Graphic novel wasn't completed until 87. Nice. So the first issue. Yeah, first issue of The Watchmen came out on 1986. September 15th. Yes. All right. Technically, technically, they didn't give a date, but I just chose the middle of the month. Oh. They just said September 86. Sometime a little, little, spo- little, little, little inside information there for you. <laughs> oh, well, anyway. Music. That's what I normally do when they, don't, when they only give me a month. I just pick a date. June yep. the 15th. Yep. God, a lot of shit happens on the 15th. <laughs> Weird. It's payday. Ah. Uh, Chock full of nuts. So the top song in the land was Take My Breath Away by Berlin. 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 <laughs> Berlin. <laughs> by Berlin. Berlin the magician. The magician. <laughs> Father, is... get the knights of the circular table. 
<laughs> Berlin commands you. Zap. Quick, somebody get dance a lot. <laughs> an idiot. Okay, so uh, moving on. Wait. Yeah, you're done with that one. No, 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 no. Real quick, I, it's funny. I was just thinking about this song the other day because I I heard it somewhere, and all I remember is everybody talking about how this song sounds nothing like the rest of Berlin's catalog. Like they're, this is not standard type. Berlin of has a catalog. Apparently, <laughs> apparently they have a catalog. Yeah, they they do, they do, and eventually they did this for. Would it be Gun. more like a pamphlet? Pretty much, really. They did this, and they're like, okay, we did this for Top Gun. Let's just make money off residuals on this song for the rest of our lives. We're cool with that. I, I, From what I understand, they weren't very happy about it. The, they've had, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight albums between 1978 and last year. What? Yep. How many of their songs have charted? Just the one. I think. Wait. I mean, even Wesley Willis has you know a catalog per se. But... That's that's a pretty good catalog, and you have you know nine full length studio albums. Berlinpage.com, dot com, official site of the synth pop. You guys have been talking about Berlin for ten minutes. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> they just they just went on their fortieth anniversary tour. This is way too much Berlin talk. And even Terry Nunn, the lead singer, had a solo album in 1991. Huh. And finally, in music, Captain EO premiered on September 12th at 1986 at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and less than a week later at Disneyland. The 17-minute movie with Michael Jackson in the title role included two Jackson songs, Another Part of Me, and We Are Here to Change the World. The short film eventually opened at Tokyo Disneyland and Disneyland Paris. But by 1998, all of the Captain EO attractions had ended their runs at the associated Disney parks throughout the world. I remember when that was a big deal. Yeah, I saw it uh, about a year after it dropped. Huh. Uh, yeah, I don't think all of uh, Epcot was even finished when I went there, but I, I do remember Figment and Captain EO. Oh, Figment. Figment was the best. You know what was good was the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids one. I, I like Josh, was it, went to Epcot when they were still building it. Like a lot of the nations had not been finished yet. Huh. Yeah. What's, we probably went within a couple months of each other. Yeah. What's Figment? The dragon. Figment was the little little dragon that uh, accompanied the wizard. I can't remember the wizard's name, but in the, what was it? The, which ride was it? Oh, it's been too long. Yeah. I can't remember. The either. wizard Berlin. We've been over this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Berlin. Berlin the magician. Berlin the magician. That's is right. The magician. Remember? Magician. <laughs> And it's Dragon Fragment. <laughs> the Imagination Pavilion. Oh. Ah. Yeah, I just uh, remember falling in love with the little animatronic buddy familiar dragon that he had. And the wizard was Dream Finder. Oh, oh, what a horrible I name. I almost called him Dream Finger. Dream fingers after me. <laughs> Dream finger. That's what they called me in college. All right, so moving on. <laughs> the top movie in the land was Stand By Me, which was knocked off by Top Gun. That took my breath away. Oh, and we're yeah. back. 
What the? <laughs> Let's do another five minutes on Berlin. <laughs> I got a tight five on Berlin. All right. Uh, Blue Velvet, directed by David Lynch and starring Isabella Rossellini, Kyle MacLachlan, and Dennis Hopper, debuted in Toronto on September 12th. Toronto was stunned for three days continuous after. The hell was that? What the fuck? (laughs) You're just like me. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that just because it's about as weird as his stuff can get and I can still be entertained by it. What's on the other side of that line? Wild at heart. Oh, yeah, I'll give you that. And I waver back and forth with uh, Mulholland Drive. Still got to see that. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. Now, just sit back and uh, watch Inland Empire, then we'll talk. I'm not a David Lynch fan, so I probably won't be seeing any of those. Mm -hmm. Probably not. You should watch Straight Story. No, thank you. That was a Disney movie that he made. Don't care. It's good. It's about a guy who drives across country on his tractor to be with his brother. It's based on a true story. It's really good. Sounds riveting. And normal. (laughs) For David Lynch. It's incredibly normal. You're you're really selling Pat on this one. It's kind of yeah. amazing. I can watch people drive their tractors all around here. I don't need to go watch a movie about it. <laughs> Stop and people. Are you in a David Lynch movie? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. You're on a tractor. I figured you're heading on to the Hallmark. Are you quirky? Of course I'm quirky. I'm Berlin the magician. <laughs> Isn't that that boy on that Laugh Goes On show? All right. Emmanuel Gray Rossum was born September 12th. She's an American movie and TV actress and singer-songwriter. She's mostly known for her portrayal of Fiona Gallagher in the television series Shameless. However, her role in Mystic River initially brought her recognition. She starred in The Day After Tomorrow and received critical acclaim for her performance in the leading role of the acronym of the week, which is T-P-O-T-O, which I'm pretty sure stands for To Poop on the Ottoman. <laughs> or if you're Uki, the chest. Oh, I wasn't going to go there. Pooping. <laughs> oh, no, that is that is the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, well, that was in 2007. And she released her debut album, Inside Out. She also released a Christmas EP the same year titled Carol of the Bells. In 2013, she released a follow-up album called Sentimental Journey. She is a renaissance woman. Renaissance. Renaissance. She loves turkey legs. She's one of the best parts of Shameless. I still haven't seen that. You would probably like it. The original or the remake? The remake. No, I mean, I know she's in the remake. I don't know. Maybe Pat saw the original. No. All right, so TV. Top shows in the land were The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers, and Murder, She Wrote. And absolutely no surprise whatsoever from any of us on that. Nope. Alfie Allen, English actor known for playing Theon Greyjoy on Game of Thrones, was born in London, England on September 12th. He's also the younger brother, younger brother of singer Lily Allen. Oh, didn't know that. Talented yeah. man. She uh, she wrote a song about him. Mm-hmm. Called, oh. ironically, Alfie. Oh. Sing about his love of thrones? No, it was actually about how he she was worried about him because all he did was sit in his room all day and smoke weed, and she thought he was never going to amount to anything. Yeah, well, 
Look now who's look laughing now. <laughs> right? Now yeah. he's more popular than she is. Well, yeah. especially considering that she kind of pissed off her entire fan base, and most people consider her insufferable now. Yep. Whereas Alfie's making movies now. Truth. Cool. All right, so the 38th Emmy Awards were held September 21st in Pasadena, California. It was co-hosted by David Letterman and Shelley Long. Golden Girls won for Outstanding Comedy Series and also two other major awards, which we are not going to mention now. For the second straight year, Cagney and Lacey won for Outstanding Drama Series and led all other shows with four major wins. With help from the guest acting category, The Cosby Show broke the record for most major nominations with 13, which has since been surpassed by My Mother the Car. All five of the guest acting nominations were people that did guest spots on The Cosby Show, because this was in the period of The Cosby Show where every week they had some celebrity Oh. As as like a random uncle, or this is my grandfather's best friend, or whatever bullshit they could do to. I hit Stevie Wonder's car, or vice versa. That was the yeah. That was one of the five was Stevie Wonder. I don't know what to say. Yeah. How many uncles yeah. we got? That whole episode was Stevie Wonder. Even though I love Stevie Wonder, was so dumb. But but baby, but baby, baby. I'd say that's a weird place to take a stand, but for you, it's not really. It's pretty much right on brand. (laughs) All right. So Frank Brandon Nelson was an American comedic actor best known for playing put upon foils on radio and television, and especially for his catchphrase. He made numerous guest appearances on television shows, including The Addams Family, The Jack Benny Program, I Love Lucy, Alice, Sanford and Son. He also provided voices for animated series such as The Flintstones, Mr. Magoo, The Jetsons, Dinky Dog, and The Snorks. Yikes. Uh, Nelson was diagnosed with cancer after a year-long battle with the disease and sadly died in Hollywood on September 12th. And lives on in The Simpsons periodically. Yes. yes. Do you have a stroke? Yes. Okay. September 15th was the first broadcast of LA Law created by Stephen Bocho, Bocho, Bokchoy, and starring <laughs> an ensemble chat, <laughs> including Corbin Burson, Jill Eikenberry, and Harry Hamlin. Time to make the donuts, Doc Man. You forgot Larry Drake. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. Bastard. It took three episodes before Harry Hamlin stopped wearing the tunic. Now we're in a law office, Harry. This isn't right. Put the shield down. Where'd you get that owl? It really clashes. <sighs> oh, and your jokes are so funny. You, you yeah. took our jokes and made them worse. Yeah. And that bar wasn't <laughs> set so high to begin with. God. On September 9th, moving on to sports. The Minnesota Vikings quarterback Tommy Kramer passed for six touchdowns versus Green Bay in a 42-7 win. Yikes. On September 13th, MLB pitcher Burt Blylevin gave up his record 44th home run in one season. And here's the fun one. (laughs) I can't wait. Chamunorwa Justice Chamu Chibhababa. <laughs> I get knocked down, but I get up That is a name and a half right there. Chamunorwa Justice Chamu. I love that like, Chamu is the nickname, not Justice. Chibhabha. 
born September 9th, is a Zimbabwean cricketer who bats right-handed and bowls right-arm medium pace. In January 2020, Zimbabwe Cricket named him as the captain of Zimbabwe's one-day international and 2020 international squads on an interim basis. Shibhabha made his maiden first-class century in a match that was drawn with a 40 and a 103 at Harare against Sri Lanka A. In his previous first-class match against South Africa Academy, he made 98 before being run out. He was the leading wicket-taker for the Mashanaland Ingles. That's the word I messed up, really, in that whole thing? Eagles. In the 2018-2019 Logan Cup with 16 dismissals in five matches. Harara. Harara. That paragraph was just rife with <laughs> with landmines. And he did so well. And <laughs> Until I got to the word eagles. <laughs> Joel, you have absolutely no reason to critique that's Mr. Berlin. That's he, lo- he, he loves it when I make one of my rare missteps in these. <laughs> is Everybody is susceptible to make a mistake. Yeah, but you, your word was Berlin. This thing looks like someone sneezed on a boggle board. But he messed up eagles. <laughs> Same thing. And lastly, to get us the hell out of this tweet. Uh-huh. On, on September 19th, Dean Jones scored an incredible 210 against India in Madras, which is the highest score by an Australian in a test in India. Jones, who was playing in his third test match and first after two and a half years, made the double century in 330 balls, which included 27 fours and two sixes. Hmm. Whoa. In an energy-sapping effort at the M.A. Chittambaram Stadium, which, unlike today, was a concrete coliseum, Jones batted for 503 minutes in 108 degrees and extreme humidity. Post him getting out, the 23-year-old had to be rushed to the hospital and put on a saline drip as he had lost 8 kilograms. Of, of like, sweat? Body weight, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> 503 minutes he batted. That is insane. I do have to say, cricket sounds a hell of a lot more ballsy than baseball. A lot more interesting, too. Yeah. Play us off, keyboard Joel. Get us the hell out of this tweet. Nah, 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 nah. Not, not, not. So, Watchmen, it's a American comic book maxi-series. Maxi not to be confused with a man. What? what? A dumb name, maxi-series? Well, because eh, well, normally they would have miniseries, and they would be usually four like, issues long. Yeah, four issues, four or five. I think this one was 18? 12. 12? Okay. Was 12, which really, I mean, that was like a whole year's worth of series that we only knew was going to be around for a while. Um, was done I mean, by... I, I get what they're trying to say. I'm just saying that that flows much less easily than miniseries. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, I mean, I can't think of a better name for it, though. Not really. It was written by Alan Moore, the big hairy beast, drawn by Dave Gibbons and colored by John Higgins, published by DC Comics between 86 and 87. And then that single volume came out after the entire uh, series was done. A number of attempts had been made to adapt the series into a feature film until Zack Snyder's Watchmen was released in 2009, and there was a video game that was pretty awful based on it. Well, was it really? I can't imagine it would be. It was like a beat-em-up 
I mean, the best they could do with the property on this is make it a night owl beats people up type of game because mm-hmm. uh, crap. Josh, the story based games who did Batman and uh, oh, Telltale before they went under. Yeah, Telltale could possibly have done a good good Watchmen game, but they're the only ones I would have trusted with that sort of thing. It's interesting that this history doesn't talk about kind of what inspired Watchmen because DC acquired the rights to the Charlton Comics characters who would go on to become the Blue Beetle, the Question, a number of other characters that actually are big in DC. And when they first got the rights to these characters, Alan Moore wrote this cracked out story that uh, ends with like Metropolis in ruins and a lot of these characters all messed up. And DC is like, this is brilliant, but we cannot let you do this (laughs) to these characters or our world. So the question becomes Rorschach, Blue Beetle becomes Night Owl, etc. Yeah. The question is one of my favorite mystery comics out there. I honestly, given a choice between like the Batman world's greatest detective and the question, I honestly would take the question over it. Well, and the question's been what's her face for years now. Uh, I, I can't believe I'm blanking on her name. Rosie Perez literally just played her in a movie. I got nothing. God, GCPD, a Har- uh, Harvey's partner. Oh, shit. Why am I forgetting her freaking name? I'm drawing a blank now, too. I know what you're talking about. I'm trying. And Margaret. Yeah. And Canfield. So while they're thinking about that, the main characters of The Watchmen is uh, Adrian Veet, and uh, also known as Osmondius, Daniel Dreiberg, who is Night Owl 2, Edward Blake, the comedian, Dr. John Osterman, who becomes Dr. Manhattan, Laurie Jus- Jaspezik. Yeah. I was going to say, you can't fuck that one up. I can't. I, 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 I don't know why. Jupiter, Silk Spectre the second, and Walter Joseph Kovacs as Rorschach. They designed it to highlight comic strengths. I, I don't know. Did any of you guys own any of the original comics? Yes. Yes. Okay. Did you notice that they are perfectly symmetrical? No. They are nine. If you if you go to the center where the staples are, open it up and divide it in half the nine squares for each page match up. And then the center is always a spread that's symmetric. And then it all goes out from the center, goes out from there. So it's nine squares, nine squares, nine squares until you get to the middle, a spread that's symmetrical. And then it goes, goes out that. So Renee um, Montoya. Yes. Yeah. I saw it too. There wasn't okay. a good point, uh, spot to jump in. Yeah. Renee Montoya becomes the question. Okay. Moore has commented that Watchmen is designed to be read four or five times. That sounds about right. I think that's fair. Yeah, before some connections and, oh my God, I didn't realize this. And that sort of uh, all becomes real, you know, becomes shows up in the readings. Again, I completely agree with this. One of the comments that he, Dave Gibbons, notes on is, as it progressed, Watchmen became much more about the telling than the tale itself. The main thrust of the story essentially hinges on a MacGuffin, so what the plot really is no great consequence. It just really isn't the most interesting thing about Watchmen. As we ca- actually came to tell the tale, that's where the actual real creativity came in. And it is. Yeah, and I, aside from like the uh, in-between chapters stuff, like a lot of the text... The first time I read Watchmen, I skipped a lot of that stuff. I mean, I read Tales of the Black Freighter, but the rest of it, like the newspaper articles and the uh, excerpts from books, 
and whatnot. I, mm-hmm. I skipped because I wanted to get back to the superhero story. And the second time I read it, I went back and read all that. And I was like, I made such a mistake. Yeah. yeah. I think everybody did that. I'm not joking when I say I have read The Watchmen from start to finish over 50 times. Yeah, yeah. I try and do it every other year. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've gone through four copies. This was my third read through of start to finish. Was actually introduced to me by my buddy Dan in high school after it came out in graphic novel format. And he was kind of like, you need to read this. I'm like, ah, I don't know. It doesn't look that great. And Dan doesn't take no for an answer. So he like, no, no, he doesn't. Yeah. No, read this. No, he eventually. He's the real dream fingers. Yes, he is. Dan and his dream fingers. That's what I changed my life. That's what he signed in my high school yearbook. Um, (laughs) I don't think I discovered it until about 2002. That would really, yeah. yeah, I don't know how many of you guys know Spencer. Yeah, Spencer, a good friend of mine, and uh, my copy is actually his copy. Loaned it to me, and it was loaned to me for so long that it just became mine. Mm. Yeah, I had a copy in high school that I got. Read it till it fell apart. Read it till read that until I was like, oh crap, there's a whole chapter missing now. Bought a new one. Like I said, I've gone through multiple copies. My, I honestly do not have one now because I lent it to somebody to read when I was working at Trader Joe's and they transferred like three weeks after I left. Oh. Yeah, I know. That sucks. I was like, they left. I'm like, oh, wait, he, he took my goddamn copy of, you know, all right. Fine. Well, if anybody's interested in reading it and hasn't yet on Amazon, you can get the 2019 edition of it for like 15 bucks. Mm-hmm. They re-released it for the, the show being put out. Yeah. So it is available and fairly inexpensive. It's difficult for me to overstate because for me, this isn't just like the most important comic book graphic novel. It's one of my favorite novels of any sort of all time. It's probably top five. Easily. Yeah. Uh, And uh, Patrick just read it for the first time. Yep. I'd never even heard of The Watchmen until the 2009 movie came out. Hmm. And I watched the movie, and I was like, okay, that was interesting. All right. And then everybody, there was a big stink about people not liking it and whatever. And I'm like, well, I don't know enough to to know not to like it, but I guess I kind of did. And then, yeah, over this last week was the, well, not even last week, pretty much all, I read like 80% of it today. So this is the first time I ever read it. What do you think? Uh, that's a loaded question to get into right now. Right. I mean, but like we, we've all gone through our history and like, I, I mean, we're prepared if you're going to shit all over it. We just, no, I'm, I'm not going to shit on it. I liked it, but I'm I'm, I'm not. I, I'm you, not, a, you're comic not a comic guy. guy. Yeah. yeah, I've never I've never been into comic books. I don't really I don't enjoy the medium that much. Contrary to what you guys were saying, I read all of the the intro stuff, you know, all the excerpts and all that kind of stuff. And personally, those are my favorite part, especially uh, Hollis's. The excerpts of the book he wrote under the hood. Those are written really well. Oh yeah, yeah. You've got one small change to their world, and basically you've got one guy with superpowers, and everything else expands from there. Nixon's eternal presidency, change in the war, changes in technology, the rise of the costume hero. Everything comes from John Osterman's almost godlike turn into the one person on the planet with superpowers. Well, and it's and it's fun. I, I've always enjoyed revisionist history, and you know, even though only parts of it are based in real life, when you've got you know the 
Dr. Manhattan being, of course, fictional, it's still fun to kind of go through and see it from a different perspective and kind of what if sort of situation. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you, Josh, as far as best book. I don't know if it's better than some other books I've read, but I definitely qualify it as as literature, as a book. And it's right up there. It's like it's a graphic uh, novel, Joel. It's it's not uh, the no, dark. Knight. You kept saying not. all damn week. Don't even give me that. The you dark corrected Knight me returned. every time I said anything. It's a graphic novel. I never corrected you once. <laughs> you did too. The the Dark Knight Returns would be the other one that I put up there with that. But I don't. I did not correct you. I didn't even think I mentioned it. I'm yeah. going to have to prove you wrong, sir. Yeah, go ahead. If you, if you like alternate history novels and that sort of thing, uh, Joel, look up um, anything by Harry Turtledove. Oh yeah, Flashman Papers. Big yeah. fan. He does a he does a great alternative history type stuff, and he he's very good with it too. So I just looked him up. I would say this after Dan introduced me to it. This hung out in my bag through high school from that point on. It was always just something I I had on me because I knew I could open it up to any point in the story and start reading for it. I know, like you guys said, it's like when I initially started reading, I'm like, hey, someone's stuck in someone's stuck an essay at the end of my comic book. You know, and it was eye opening to me because up until that point, I had been I had started collecting comics, but I started like the first comic series I ever collected was like ElfQuest. And then did that and that what tracks. I yeah, I know it makes <laughs> me right totally. Yeah. Um, but then when I when he introduced me to this, I mean, it was just this whole idea of superheroes and vigilantes having a moral code that they have to deal with personally. And everyone, you know, at that in high school, everyone who was into the comics, oh, everybody was all about Rorschach. Everybody was all about you know the the funky changing. Uh, mask and all that but in rereading it recently i'm identifying more with night owl i mean yeah rorschach is i i think a lot of people that didn't read watchmen since like their first time and like didn't appreciate some of the subtle nuances like they were into rorschach and then they watched the hbo series and like wait a minute why, why are they representing people following rorschach as these shitty people it's like go back and read rorschach he's kind he's cool got a cool costume but he's kind of a piece of shit i mean he's a piece of it. the other thing that was commented on on this i want to say it was dave gibbons or somebody somebody made the comment that rorschach's been well we'll get to this for the second half but rorschach's been dead for 30 years and the new frontiersman newspaper got a hold of his book his his journal and represented him as they represented him unfortunately he's dead and he can't be like you know he can't come back from the dead and be like all right come on i was an asshole but i wasn't a full-on freaking white supremacist you know, I can't. And in his mind, he wasn't a terrorist, right? Right. No, but he thought he was a patriot, and that's. It's interesting that you've got the concept of guy who thinks he's a patriot almost as a terrorist, like way ahead of its time. This was a like punk rock deconstruction of the costume superhero, mm-hmm. and I, in a lot of ways, I feel it's prof- it was prophecy for some of the stuff you saw in the twenty thirty years past its release well and Rorschach is as he says himself you know he's uncompromising there's even at the end of the world he's not gonna compromise he's just there's no black and white with him yeah not even in the face of Armageddon yep it's it's either it's either right or it's wrong and there's there's no in between and and the first time I read it I 
I felt more akin with Night Owl as as well. As much as I like the character of Warshock, I think it's a it's a a kind of a, a very three dimensional character. Like I said, very cool costume, interesting guy to watch. But as far as people that I was most interested in, Night Owl was the one that definitely caught my my interest as well. Mm-hmm. It's funny because like the the character my first time through that immediately grabbed me is Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias. <laughs> and like I still kind of get it. Like we go into some really interesting places with Ozymandias in the HBO series, which we're going to talk about in the second half. But I think a lot of the nuance of these people who are fundamentally broken in some ways is one of the reasons why people take a dump all over the Zack Snyder movie so much is because like a lot of his other comic book work, he gets the visuals right. He gets the sequences of events and fight scenes right and then misses the why. He misses what it's all about. Yeah. So moving on to the movie. Uh, currently, well, we can circle back with the comic yeah, throughout. If we must. Yeah, I know. I mean, we got to we got to cover this a little bit at least. Yeah. Screen, but currently sits at Rotten Tomatoes with a 65 on the critics and a 71 on the audience score. 2009, they described it as a neo-noir superhero film, which I think they kind of went from the dystopian future of the comic and kind of changed that. They made it a little bit They were like. This is really depressing. Let's up it a little bit. But set up in 85, Cold War between the United States and Soviet Union. Retired superheroes investigates the murder of one of their own. Just close to the comic as you can without totally breaking it. This is the interesting thing about this is that it 87 to 2005, the live action film was kicked around for years. It was stranded in development hell. Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver began developing the project at 20th Century Fox. Eventually, Warner Brothers picked it up. And then they hired Terry Gilliam. I remember hearing about this and being, oh, my God. You know, you can't pick a better person to do with the Watchmen than Terry Gilliam. And then he finally read the book a couple times and said, this is completely unfilmable. Yep. Which at the time, uh, it would have been, it wouldn't have done it justice. I mean, I don't think he was talking about the effects. I don't think he was talking about uh, Dr. Manhattan and the big blue wiener. Um, <laughs> I think I think there are so, there's so much subtlety and so many annoyances and so much information coming out of the book that if you were it would be almost like a super adult version of Harry Potter. You would have seven movies to put this whole thing through. Yeah. And it's super important. The manner in which the story is told, like the medium is part of the message. And that's one thing that I think I, I'm not going to say Snyder didn't do take his best shot at it. And uh, in Snyder's defense, it's not the worst or even second worst adaptation of Alan Moore's work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that would go to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and then From Hell, respectively. Right. Might be yeah. the third worst, though. Universal Pictures picked up, Revolution Studios picked it up, Paramount Pictures tried to produce a film. Directors such as David Hayter, Darren Aronofsky, and Paul Greengrass were attached to it. And then they had budget disputes. And finally, it went with Snyder, who one thing I do give a good props to him for is that his storyboards were modeled off the comic book. So you could almost I've seen I've seen a. uh, An extras type video on the Watchmen, the movie, and there are moments in the movie where you can pause it 
and look in the book and find that frame. Mm -hmm. Well, his visuals are not one of the many legitimate criticisms of his filmmaking. Yeah. Visually, the movie is stunning. Yeah, it looks really good. Yeah. Uh, They did not use green screens. Uh, not, I'm sorry, take that. They did not, Jay did not shoot all of Watchmen using green screens and opted for real sets when they could. You know, Zack Snyder, after 300, probably was the best choice on this. And it, it's, it's an incredibly difficult IP to translate from graphic novel into a movie with just one movie. And see, I could see uh, Darren Aronofsky being a, a reasonable choice, but. I agree, and especially after rereading it, that a second film would have been better or stretching out what was already a, a pretty bloated film to begin with. You know, if you watch a director's cut, it's over three hours long. Yikes. Yeah, I'm not sure more movie fixes the problem. I, I think Gilliam was right. It actually is unfilmable. Well, and if you include the Black Freighter stuff that he also did, uh, you're looking at three and a half hours. Roughly. That Black Freighter stuff was my least favorite part of the whole thing, by the way. Really? Yeah. I mean, I thought the story was good, but I just it just kept taking me out of the actual Watchmen story. I didn't I didn't like any of the news vendor Black Vent Black Freighter stuff. I didn't care for it at all. Like going switching back and forth every single panel between the two of them. I was just like, all right, this is getting tedious. Huh. I mean, you'll. I think that's something that the Black Freighter, uh, unless you're into pirate horror comics to begin with, is something that, like, drawing the parallels between that and the rest of the world. I'm not saying you didn't get it on the first. Yeah, I definitely understood what they were going for. I just didn't enjoy. The, I didn't enjoy the physical reading of that. Gotcha. Okay. Mm. Which it can be a little jarring the first time through. I know it was for me. Well, it, it took me like until the second time they should. The first time I was reading it. The first time the newsman and the kid. I, I was completely kind of kind of like, what the hell's going on here? And by the second time, I was like, yeah. okay, I get what they're doing. But, you know, yeah, one of the like reasons uh, Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore. Alan Moore said about that was to kind of give a reflection on the society as a whole, that they would not be really interested in superhero comics because they're superheroes flying around, zipping around, doing all that all in their normal daily life. So why would they want to read about it when they just look out the window? So they went with a pirate theme for that secondary one to give another almost a little almost like a little break in the flavor of it. It grows on you. I mean, I am completely 100 percent biased in my opinion on this. But it's just a matter of. I don't know. It grew on me after like the fourth or fifth reading of it. Well, and more than just like they're familiar with superheroes, because this is long after all the hero, almost all the heroes are decommissioned. Like, superheroes are not popular with the average person. Like, they are viewed like the jackbooted thugs of the government ever mm-hmm. since the end of Vietnam and that when they were called in for crowd control. So it's like, why why would you want a comic book of, like, I'm trying to think of the the most recent parallel, maybe terrorists. Like a comic book about ICE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it's a hot button issue that, you know, you don't really want to try and make it entertaining at this point in history. Right. Maybe 20, 30 years down the road, they'll make movies about it or whatnot. But. Yeah. That whole scene in the in the comic book where they show them, you know, clearing out the streets and people are you know arguing against them. Yeah, that's not exactly something that you want to try to glorify later in comics. 
Right. And it kind of comes back to the horrible choices that uh, Adrian Veidt makes to save the world. He believes that the comedian was right all along, that uh, they can have their ideals, they can do whatever they think is right, but it doesn't matter because the world is headed towards Armageddon. And the world that they created, the one that was set up by the way Vietnam ended, that's almost certainly correct. Like, if something major doesn't happen, definitely the the world probably does get consumed in nuclear hellfire in a couple of years. If not sooner. Yeah, I don't know that mass murder by way of psychic alien is my <laughs> plan A. Adrian Veidt, the whole concept of that guy is of the, the smartest man in the world thing is he's probably on one end you've got the comedian who is friggin terrifying you know who kills who doesn't who just does not give a shit and is killing because he does not give a shit on the other end of the spectrum you've got Veidt and Osmondius who are killing because they give a shit right he feels that it's justified the most intelligent man in the world versus the most amoral man in the world yeah, though I will say that the comedian's costume was pretty badass. And if you look at, like, the reason they fight, uh, Veidt, the comedian, and Rorschach in particular, they fight to work through their own trauma, which it's implied that all superheroes do that, which is why it's so fucked up that Silver, uh, that Silk Spectre and Night Owl pretty much can only get hot for each other with the costumes on after they've beat the fuck out of a bunch of people. Like, there's definitely some unresolved issues there as well. Mm-hmm. So moving on to the cast. Oh, yeah, we were talking about the movie, weren't we? <laughs> we drifted <laughs> back to the book, didn't we? Yeah. Malin Ackerman. Malin? 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 Malin Ackerman. Malin Ackerman was Laurie Jupiter and Silk Spectre. Billy Crudup. Crudup. God, these names. Dr. Manhattan and John Osterman. Matthew Good as Adrian Veidt and Osmondius. Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach, Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Edward Blake, the comedian, Patrick Wilson as Dan Dryberg, Night Owl, and Carla Gugino as Sally Jupiter, Silk Spectre. Joel had tossed in some trivia for me on this one, and Jackie Earl Haley was the only one of the main actors who was already familiar with the comic book, and he actively campaigned for the part of Rorschach. And I think he knocked it out of the park, but I'm not exactly a huge fan like you guys. He, he played the character to the hilt. Uh-huh. Yeah, I have no problems with the performances of many. Like, I, I don't think that uh, Melanie Ackerman's a particularly great actress. But like Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Jackie Earl Haley, you can't ask for better casting. No. See, and, all, and whereas Patrick Wilson wasn't 100% the right build versus the comic, I thought he did the character justice of Night Owl. Everybody did a great job with the script that they were given. That's what I think. I mean, like you said... Malin Eckerman was not is not a great actress, but for the for as far as you can go with this comic, with this script, with this idea and this story, I think everybody did just as good as you could expect to do. My personal favorite, while while Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach was great, Jeffrey Dean Morgan as a comedian was fantastic. Hundred percent, I'm right there with you. I even though I'm not really a fan of this movie, I have no complaints about especially those two castings. Yeah, and that's why I think, like, in the the Rotten Tomatoes rating on this, you got, like, the 50s for the critics, and you've got the 70s in the, for the viewers. I think it was the the viewers, the people that love this, love this story, that came to it and went, you know, it's not great, but we know what you're working with. 
you gave it a you gave it the good old college try and did as best as you could with it, and that's why I think you got that higher score there. And second one, tra- first trailer for the film, which premiered with The Dark Knight in 2008, sparked so much interest that it sent the graphic novel back into the bestseller list, and Barnes & Noble Bookstore reported selling out of the novel nationwide. See, and if, even if you dislike the film, if it drove people to read the book, right, then it's not all bad. On the contrast of Jackie Earl Haley, Matthew Good as Adrian Veidt had never read the graphic novel. He called a friend who had read it and asked, should I even bother with this? And they were like, yes, you should. Not only did the friend say yes, he insisted that Good immediately read the graphic novel and accept the role without any questions. Later, after he read both the script and the novel, he admitted his friend was right to advise him to take the role without delay. And then Patrick Wilson had the same situation. He had never even heard about the Watchmen comic, uh, called a buddy of his, who was a huge comic book fan, and told Pat that if he was ever uh, to do a superhero movie, that this is the one to do. Having gotten the part, Patrick actually invited his friend to be on set when filming the prison escape scene. Ah. That's nice of him to do that. Which, out of all the comic, the prison escape is probably my favorite uh, section of the whole book. Uh, Zack Snyder, well, I said about this, he bases storyboards on the panels from the graphic novel. And also, because his said the original visual art should be respected as much as the written portion, Snyder personally asked Dave Gibbons to come back and do the first teaser film poster. He enthusiastically agreed and desired the poster to have subtle visual clues hilting at the film's plot. When casting the film, each actor was presented with a script and a copy of the book. They were allowed to carry the latter on set and rewrite the dialogue to better match that the source material. Uh, dozens of scenes reenact panels from the novel. A good example is Rorschach squatting on the windowsill about to enter the comedian's apartment early in the film. That's kind of cool where you get the script and you get the book and you're like, if you need, if, if you want to make it more true to the actual story, pencil it in. Now, see, I, I like the film. I was excited to see the film and I still enjoy it, but it's kind of like the, the crow where the original James O'Barr series before it spun off and do all the multitude of other things that it did is, is, or, was my my favorite just kind of encapsulated comic series and i was excited to see the film and while i enjoy the film and i feel like the last 30 minutes could be cut off and it would be better i separated from the comic because they're kind of two different things and whereas i feel like this got a lot of it right it's it isn't the comic um but it's still i think a, a better than average superhero movie if you want to call it that, because there are superheroes in it. Yeah, I, I tend to be fairly unforgiving of poor adaptations, especially if the heart and soul of what made the original great is lost. And that's my biggest problem with this. It, it doesn't look wrong. It just it feels wrong. See, I give it a little bit more forgiveness on this because there's a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of plot lines. I mean, there were times in the book where I would finish a chapter and be like, well, that was fun. Better go back and read that again right now because I have no friggin' idea what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially after you're done reading the essay at the end. While it is not even close to my, like, favorite superhero movie, you know, and that's in quotes, it is a damn good try in my book for what you had. I mean, as a Snyder, I think, like I said, 
He gave it a damn good try. There was just a lot going on. There's just a lot of stuff in that book. I mean, how how do you divvy up the the sections of you know behind the behind the mask excerpts and how do you because you need that to understand everything that's going on in the book. You don't have just like to have narration in the middle of the story where they're talking about that. You know, it's it's really a difficult thing, and I think he did a great job with it. It just couldn't, like Terry Gilliam said, you just cannot make this movie. Yeah. And I, I definitely think it's it's entirely possible to have characters that behave in ways similar to the characters on the page and look exactly like them, but you make changes not understanding why they do what they do, and you, you're pretty far off, off base. And, and I think that's my biggest criticism. It's not that they needed more screen time. That, that wouldn't help if you don't have the motivations, if you don't actually understand the characters before you try to put them on screen. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we've seen that with other characters. Like it's clear that uh, he doesn't understand either Superman or Batman, especially Batman, <laughs> but they look cool. You know, I mean, yeah, they look cool. I, I enjoyed his film, his DC movies, the not well outside of this one. They're definitely as as he's gotten further along in his career. I think he was a lot stronger initially with his films. And the further he gets, kind of the more he, I don't know if it's ego or if it's script. He's getting a little or, little Picasso ish. What are you gonna do? I'm Snyder. Yeah, he, yeah. He feels like he's just like this worked, so I'm gonna do that again. But I'm gonna do it with plug this character in and plug this character in. And while I still enjoy it and they're still visually very striking. It's kind of like Sucker Punch. I want to love that movie. I've seen it a couple times, and there's parts of it that are just absolutely amazing. But as a whole, it's kind of slow. It's kind of boring. It's kind of doesn't do a lot. I mean, it could be possible that the reason why 300 is successful and a lot of his later works are not is because even if you look at the original comic for 300, there's not a whole lot there besides quips and strong visuals. Yeah, I, I. It's not a complex story. No, and a complete bastardization of history. Well, I mean, outside of that, if you, if you actually, Josh is right. If you have ever read her, I, I own three hundred. It's a lot of really cool pictures with a lot of very few words. Mm-hmm. Well, go back to what is probably my favorite Zack Snyder film, and the one that made me a fan of his initially is his two thousand four remake of Dawn of the Dead. But he's got a script by James Gunn based off of the Romero original. And so he's got a pretty solid base to work with. But yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of if there was anything before that or anything after that that I mean that was his first feature film, it looks like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the rest are all comic book adaptations. Like literally all of them. Even some of the stuff that's coming out. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Are are we ready to go to the break or should I just continue to hate on Zack Snyder until we are forced to go to the break because of time? Real quick, I would I would like to know. Mike already mentioned that his favorite part of the graphic novel was was the prison break. So what what did your three, your your two other guys favorite? My favorite, I will say, was all the bits of Dr. Manhattan on Mars when he was talking about how he sees time and what is all going. I, I thought that was pretty cool. Where he, where he builds the, the uh, crystal palace. But just before that, when he's talking about the photograph and now, now I'm here, now I'm this, now I'm this, now this is happening. Now that's happening. And it's all just kind of happening all at the same time, even though they're like 
decades apart. Interesting to see the way he sees time. For me, it's probably the moments across a couple of pages where Rorschach starts to put together what actually happened, like why these disparate events all occurred, how they're connected and what it means that uh, the comedian is like breaking down in tears. Usually those things are heavily foreshadowed, so the audience picks it up before the character does, but Moore has more uh, confidence in his audience than that. He's going to tell it his way, and Rorschach is a better detective than the reader is. Yes. For me, I think it's the last sequence when they arrive at at Veidt's compound in, uh, is it Krakow? Klaka? I can't think of what it's called all of a sudden. In his ice fortress thing. Yeah. And they're going back and forth between trying to kick each other's asses and discussing the finer points of what they've realized and what the plan is. And they get to the point where, like, they're thinking they're going to be able to stop it. And he's like, oh, that already happened. Yeah. And yeah. it's that like, moment. Do you think I'd tell you about this if there was a chance you could stop it? It, it was such, It happened 30 minutes ago. <laughs> exactly. It was such a what the fuck moment. The first time I read it, I went, wait, what? What? That's not how this works. The the villain gives his exposition, then they stop him. And it it was one of those kind of like, okay, I'm grown up now. You know, time to go get a job and pay taxes. Yeah, that's the thing. Is Osmandias at the end was like, well, that's done. What am I going to do now? And what you were saying about about Moore, he he expects a lot from his readers. He does not lead you on. He wants you to dig for stuff in his story. And I I 100 appreciate that. By the way, in my in my reading, I like it when things are not spoon fed. Oh yeah, he does. He does not do that. Oh, could just go read his run of Swamp Thing. Some of the uh, just it's just fucking amazing. Probably some of the um, that era's best comics right there is with the his version of Swamp Thing. Oh, I I read through those about four years ago for the first time, and just was just on the floor. I was just like, how the fuck have I not read this before? It's just amazing. Good stuff. He's, yeah, he's a smart dude. Weird dude. All right. Well, I need a break. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's go to the break and uh, come back and we'll uh, do a deep dive on the HBO show. Right on. We'll be back in a little bit. All right, we are back, and we are going to talk about Watchmen, the HBO show that came out in 2019. We're going to call spoilers, but yeah. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to talk about a lot of what's interesting and makes the HBO show special without spoiling some major plot points. Right. So if you think it's going to be spoiled, hit fast forward 10 seconds on your app or and and if you are geeked to watch a show but haven't yet for some reason just be warned or or just pause it right now and go watch it and come back after you're done yeah. watching the show yeah because we'll, we'll wait we'll wait for you let's let's just let's pause ourselves we'll all right okay. we'll drink. you guys come back 10 hours later <laughs> all right so this is set in an alternate history where masked vigilantes are treated as outlaws watchmen embraces the nostalgia of the original groundbreaking graphic novel of the same name while attempting to break new ground of its own uh, currently sitting at 95 percent on critics and 55 percent on audience score on tomatoes 
why is it so like I mean we'll get to that I guess but holy crap that's a huge margin uh, it starts with R and ends with acism uh, just, just my take I was going to say it's a Zack Snyder contingency. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's people who were expecting more of the same. Well, yeah, but usually that doesn't get the vitriol and review bombing, is my point. Is the last time we saw that kind of like hardcore review bombing, it was Black Panther. Mm. I'd be curious to go. I'm going to have to go on there and read some of those reviews, the audience ones. But anyway. Yes. So I don't understand what there's not to like about it. Well, we'll get to yeah. that. Yeah. So Regina King plays Angela Abar in this one, also known as Night Sister. Sister. Night Sister. 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 Yeah, yeah, we almost got it right. Just blanked out on there. Her husband. I thought it was uh, Red Knight, but they called her Sister Knight. No, it's Sister Knight. Yeah. Oh, okay. You can find out why later. Red Scare. They explain it later. Okay. I got gotcha. you. You going to let me talk about the rest of the people that play in this? <laughs> no, okay. no, let's just talk about her. All right, cool. There okay. You go. Welcome to 40 Going On Regina King. <laughs> I'm cool with it. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So Yaha Abdul-Mateen II as Cal. I was expecting a more name there for the second half. Tom Mazan of, as Mr. Phillips. Sarah Vickers as Miss Crookshanks. Jeremy Irons as Adrian Veet. Andrew Howard. By Andrew Howard. Red Scare. Louis Gossett Jr. as Will Reeves, Gene Smart as Lori Blake, Tim Blake Nelson as Wade Tillman, D- Dylan Shumbing as Topher Abar, and James Walk as Joe Keen. Did you know your last name is an onomatopoeia? Shumbing? Shumbing! <laughs> shumbing! So some Where are you going? Ma- I gotta go shumbing. <laughs> Shut up, you asshole. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> uh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> all right so <laughs> and we've already pissed off josh and mike <laughs> no just like after that jolly little conversation and giggles all right the tulsa massacre in 1921 <laughs> how do you segue into that <laughs> against the black community is actually based on a real historical event yep. so take that chuckles <laughs> yeah that's that's an awkward like i, I don't I, I'm a little squicky that that's in trivia. <laughs> yeah. Joel did the trivia on this one, man. No, I'm sure he didn't write it originally. It's just like whoever put that in for trivia, it's like, I don't know. It's trivia. I mean, it's not trivial, but it's trivia. No. Yeah. Uh, this is a second attempt at a Watchmen TV series. Terry Gilliam attempted an adaptation in the early 90s, but can only conceive the story being so epic at the time that it could only be accomplished on television rather than film. Gilliam's vision went into pre-production with HBO, cast Robin Williams as Rorschach. Yikes. What? He loved Robin Williams. They were like kindred spirits. They were best friends. He loved him. That's why. I Jamie Lee Curtis as Silk Spectre. Gary Busey as a comedian. Eh, I could, I could see Busey as a comedian. Kevin Costner is Night Owl. Yeah. Oh, I hate Kevin Costner. Same. He doesn't like you too much either. Mm-mm. Good. I talked to him. He's like, that pac man, you're a dick. Dan Dryberg is kind of a drip. I don't think Kevin Costner is a terrible casting. I'm not sure I'd like, I don't like this cast at all. No. No. 
but some of them hit closer than Robin Williams' Rorschach. Right. Ultimately failed after HBO was like, we don't have that much money. And then Gilliam was like, well, fine. It's unfilmable anyway. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting that it came up earlier on, and I'm kind of glad I, I left this because I thought about taking it out, but it kind of goes a little bit more into the why, plus it gives you that cast list, which I knew everybody was going to be like, what? Yeah. Uh, the series is a continuation of the 86 graphic novel instead of the 2009 movie adaptation. Uh, stories and events from the graphic novel were changed or removed in the movie, are mentioned or shown in the series, most notable being the squid attack on New York, which was completely changed in the 2009 film. Oh, speaking of which, I thought it was interesting, and I, we didn't talk about it in the, in the, the then, but that Snyder opted to have it be a series of attacks instead of one. Interesting is a word for it. And I didn't realize it, uh, like it didn't hit me until I was watching it all again, and I kind of immersed myself in this world. And I was like, that was a strange choice. But anyway, sorry, moving on. So uh, as a child, Will sees a silent movie called Trust in the Law about the U.S. Marshal Bass Reeves, directed by Oscar Micheville. Michelle. <laughs> not sure where you got that V from. I don't know. I have a, I have a random V. I, I got uh, In various ways, this movie deeply influences the rest of life through the specific movie is fictional. Both Reeves and Michelle are real life historical figures. Reeves, born in 1838 to 1910, was the first black deputy U.S. Marshal in the American West, working in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Upon his retirement from the Marshal Service, he became a police officer in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Oscar Micheaux was a pioneer in the early film industry from 84, 1884 to 1951, who made both silent and sound pictures about African-American life. And they played a lot with, again, with revisionist kind of history, like Steven Spielberg's film adaptation of the New York disaster. Yeah, instead of making Schindler's List. Yep. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Me too. All right. In the graphic novel, the Keene Act, named after Senator Joseph Keene, outlaws mass vigilantes in 1979. Ironically, in the television show, Keene's son, Joseph Keene Jr., enacts the DOPA, Defense of the Police Act, uh, which opposes the Keene Act and allows police officers to wear masks following the events of the White Knight. There's a trivia. Fun, fun, fun. I think the easiest place to start with this is to put it in context, because we all came to Watchmen, even Mike, who came to Watchmen pretty early, after it was sort of out of its historical context place. Watchmen was deeply disruptive and played into fears of its day, of nuclear annihilation. Oh, my God, the Russians are going to kill us all. The government is fucking everybody over. Like, stuff that would make people of their day deeply uncomfortable. And when they want to do a new Watchmen, they have to still be anti-establishment and tap into things of right now, this moment, that make the average person very uncomfortable, regardless of where you stand politically, which is why you tap into race relations, the cops, and still get that through line of what happened to some of the characters. For me, the, the moment this thing's vision crystallized was how deeply uncomfortable I was at watching a scene where you've got poor white supremacists being brutalized by the police who are masked black cops. 
I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. You're going to find something to find uncomfortable about that image. My initial take was like, everyone is fascist. You know, it's you have your secret police, mass police going into your trailer park where the white supremacists live and dragging them out of their home, putting them inside of a big bubble. And if that doesn't work, we get someone to beat the crap out of you until you say, we want you to hear. We want to hear. And the detail where they say, how did we get to here from where we were is obsessive. I had a lot to say in the first half about how Zack Snyder didn't get it. These filmmakers get it. They understand. They even do a deep dive into weird stuff like Huda Justice having been accused of having Nazi sympathies in like a one-off line in the comic book. One thing you realize, we're already drifting into spoiler territories, is Huda Justice despite not being the sort of person you would think to uh, have Nazi sympathizers, had a father who gave him his most prized possession. And on the back of that prized possession was a bunch of German propaganda. Which, in the context in the series, when they drop it from the plane and he's reading it, you're like, okay, huh. Well, they're not wrong. Right? It was an, a little unnerving because you could immediately see where if you were one of those soldiers. There was a little bit of sugarcoating about how African-Americans were treated in Germany, but, you know. Right. But if, if you didn't know and, and all your only image of them was what you were being fed by the news or by your, you know, your people in charge of your unit, it might be like, oh, hell, what am I doing on this side? And it, it just was that moment of kind of like, holy shit. And propaganda does not have to be factual, factually correct in order to have a particular effect. I loved how they did the whole through line where they don't even specify who Adrian Vide is. He's this insane, cartoonish, violent dude. And then the big reveal of who he is and where he is. Yeah, the catapult thing. I was really confused about that for a long time. Why? Okay. Okay. He's catapulting these bodies out into the sky. You know, at one point, I, I mean, from knowing him from the comics, like, yeah, if he went completely batshit and saying, I could see him being this type of person that would fire clones, dead clones into the sky. Fine. It's Adrian. He would do that. But then the big exposure when he's putting on that fur and leather spacesuit, you know, finding out that they have him captured in a bubble on the other side of the solar system was pretty crazy. And I have to say, one of the more disturbing things I've seen on television, especially, and, and just really unsettling is when he takes, he's, he's basically fishing for clones in the, in the water. Oh, the baby scenes. He takes the two back. He puts them into the. Lobster trap. Yeah. Speed up process thing, whatever you want to call it. The machine that makes him grow up. Oh, the grow a fire. I think I was there. Yeah. The, the grow a fire. Right. The sounds and the just the the visual image I've made in my own head because they don't show you of these infants being forced to grow up in a matter of a minute is incredibly unsettling. The crunchy bits and then the the screaming, the screaming and how he's sitting there. He's listening to music. He's just, you know, I think he was eating something and just kind of like, you know, it's normal every day to him. Uh, It just it was it was very effective. And. Just putting my clones in a centrifuge again. There you go. Yeah, time to 
clones. It's like the donut guy. Time to make the clone ups. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I also want to talk a little bit about the character design, in particular, Sister Knight and oh, I'm blanking on Looking Glass. Looking, Looking Glass. Glass. Yeah. Mirror yeah, guy. Yeah. Holy crap. I want to say the reveal that uh, the episode entirely about Looking Glass on his origin story and his character probably is one of my favorites, favorite episodes because you see in that episode, it goes full circle of him. You realizing why he is the way he is, why he wears a mask. This is why he thinks the way he does. And then the rug gets pulled out of from underneath him. Right. And so, yeah, talking about looking glasses background, the way they build him up and all the little building blocks that make his personality, you can see him going like ultra good old boy, the whole KKK Rorschach clone army. You could see him going that way. And there's just like this moment where you realize that he could never possibly do that. Mm hmm. Like, I, I was practically fist pumping at his, like, reveal of his motiva- uh, motivations and what he actually does by the end of the series. And can I just say, everyone in this series is spot on and amazing. And Regina King just, I can't say enough good things about her. And it for the 2020 Emmys, it was up for, I think, 26 or is up for 26 nominations. Yeah, which it deserves every one of them. I was very concerned going into this because while I like the film, I, the the book is so so much a thing. I, I was afraid of what they were going to do, and uh, you know, not to get too far ahead, but I felt like they they pulled it off. But, yeah, I mean, you saw how difficult, how tough I am on adaptations of this, and I, I watched it in a couple of nights, and I was over the moon instantly. And Regina King, like, she's badass, she's tough, she's vulnerable. You get to see a full range of emotions, almost every emotion you can imagine, out of her character by the end of the series. That gave me a whole new appreciation for her. I was a big fan of of Jean Smart and, and her character in this because it was interesting to see the side of of someone who'd been around the superheroes all her life and is just just tired of them. Yeah, just, she's over just, it. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. over the whole damn thing. And and I love the whole, you know, kept calling him mirror guy even when he she was he was on her side. <laughs> Especially at the end, she's like, You can you can if you want mirror guy, you can be called mirror guy. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> no, I agree with you, Pat. I think that the whole just like I'm i I'm through of it, you know, you guys aren't as cool as you've you think you are type attitude towards everybody. And it always I love the fact how it threw everybody that she interacted with. I'm pretty sure Joel's alone in that because I, I didn't have any problem with Lori. I thought she was a badass. And I also really like Jean Smart as an actress, too. So that helped a little bit. I was very excited when she popped and up Joel on screen. And Joel you know, likes this woman quiet and stuff. So. so what I was saying was, is that I liked her portrayal so much because she played that part to the point where I didn't care for her. I didn't like her. I oh, you, you hated her. We know. You, her. We know. You hated her. And that's a good sign for an actress if you can get a elicit a reaction out of your viewer. So how long how long have you stopped hitting women, Joel? <laughs> I've never hit a woman in my life. <laughs> okay, well we're there. <laughs> Jesus. 
So um, how how much are we going to worry about spoilers? Because this is a new show. Do we want to talk about the big, big twist? Yeah, because I've already alluded to Will as Hooded Justice, which I kind of want to circle around back to just because it's... Well, let's talk about that then. Let's talk about that then before we go into the biggest spoiler of them all. Hooded Justice. So she took her her grandfather's nostalgia pills, all of them at once, which was... Bad idea. Real yeah. bad idea. <laughs> Real yeah. bad idea for a multitude of reasons, and ends up spending uh, probably 80% of the episode living his memories as herself and as him, and that's when you get, you get the big turn that Hooded Justice not only was not a white guy, but it was her grandfather, Louis Gossett Jr.'s character. And in yep. a way, like, he was the first superhero. And it was interesting because they were sticking so close to the comic that when you kind of got that hint, like when he was taken down off the the lynchin tree, that uh, that's where they were headed. I was like, I went and I grabbed my copy of the book and I was like, and all the images here, he's he's a white guy. I'm like, what the hell? And then when I figured it out, I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah. And they're playing with the idea of blackface. I mean, you've got him doing basically whiteface. And then his granddaughter has almost a reverse version of that where she is black, but she has even darker black spray to put her mask on. So they're definitely playing with something that has a racially sensitive sort of connotation with both of their characters. And I thought that was a really uh, smart choice. Although it's crazy. It seems like Don Johnson's uh, new career path is secret racist. (laughs) <laughs> oh man, and and it turns out he really wasn't after all. I mean, he kind of was, but he was racist, racist adjacent kind of, you know. And how cool was that the the twist that she's the one that ended up causing his death in the first place by right Patrick. racist adjacent? Yeah, it's a Texas thing. Well, oh. no, I mean their their whole organization behind the senator, like they they were white supremacists. Oh yeah, that you know what I I'm not gonna lie, I kind of forgot. That he was, that he and his wife were in that. So never mind. Definitely, definitely racist. Not adjacent. Not adjacent. They, they were occupying both seats. I was thinking that she accidentally got him killed because he was holding onto his grandfather's robe, but it wasn't actually. Yeah. So never mind. Scratch that. That was just one of the potential explanations for it, but wasn't the reality. Right. right. Yeah. There was a moment in one of the, ep- you know, in like almost a full episode where you thought he was innocent and then you come and find out. Yeah. With the trap door. Who puts a trap door in their living room? <laughs> that scene was a riot. <laughs> yeah. What she keeps pressing the button. What are you doing? <laughs> and again, and again, with this, she's about to fall into this pit type of thing. She falls into the pit, and her whole attitude again is just like, God damn it. You know? <laughs> like more bullshit I have to put up with you pe- from you people. <laughs> this has stopped being clever years ago. You know? <laughs> but yeah, and then, you know, obviously the big twist. Who wants to spoil it for the listeners? Well, just listeners, if you haven't watched all the way through the Watchmen series. This might be the time to duck out and come back next week. Yeah, come back yeah. after you finish it. Because we find out in episode eight. She really hates her husband. <laughs> yeah, she pulls out a hammer and beats her husband in the head. And you find out that she's not killing him. She's awakening the fact that he is Dr. Manhattan. Cal is Dr. Manhattan. And didn't know it the whole time. And, and when you look at the characterization of all the characters, Cal was vaguely nice, but like he didn't have a whole lot going on. The only time there was a flash of anything 
is when he got involved with the kids talking about whether or not there was God. But otherwise, he was just sort of like warm and comforting and not much of a character. And then holy shit. Yeah. And and they kept talking about the accident and how he didn't have any memory from before the accident. And, you know, it's one of those things that when you when the pieces are all put together, you're like, oh, Jesus, of course. How did I miss that? Right. Dr. Manhattan is is my favorite of all the characters from Watchmen. And it was that was a, a, a great moment when when she pulled the ring out and he just started glowing. And I was like, what? <laughs> and some of the, the, the ways that he talks both in the comic and in the series just kind of blow my mind sometimes with how he talks about, you know, this is going to happen. And you keep thinking, okay, well then change it. It doesn't have to happen, but he already knows it's going to happen, but he goes through with it anyway. Yeah, well, it's, it's like telling you don't let what happened yesterday happen. Like there isn't a choice. Or it's like trying to tell us, you know, you know, if you get this drunk, you're going to regret tomorrow. That kind of oh. thing. Yeah. But uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's oh. one of the things I really like about Doc, you know, Dr. Manhattan is the fact that, you know, he knows what's coming, but he even himself is like, I'm just an, a, a, an agent of time. I can't, I don't have any, you know, I can't change these things. I just know they're happening. I know they're going to happen. And like the, the scene in the, in the bar, when she, he finds out he meets her and says, you know, you're, this is the anniversary of your parents' death. And then she, when she tells him, he's like, Oh my God, really? This is the, end. and she's like, well, you already know that. He's like, yeah, but I'm just finding out now. <laughs> right. And they pull that in the comic too. Like uh, mm-hmm. when they get into fights, it's like, we're going to get in a fight over this. Yeah. And then, She's surprised when she brings it up because he had already brought it up. And he's like, what? How dare you? <laughs> yeah. You're about to tell me that you've been having an affair with Dan this whole time. What? How do you know that? I don't know that. But you're going to tell me in just a little bit. And e- even in the comics, she's like, stop talking like that. You're really you're messing with my head. Uh, I don't know. The The character of Dr. Manhattan to me is I don't think he was one of my favorites in there, but there wasn't a lot of them. but. I never really wrap my head around the time travel thing with him. The time paradox. Yeah. The, t- the time paradox thing. It's sort of like the same reason why he can exist in multiple places at once. Like he doesn't perceive time the same way we do. He's still bound by it. He still has a beginning, a middle, and now we know an end, but all of those States kind of exist in one kind of pile of stuff for him. But he can communicate back and forth between those times, we find out. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like time traveling, but not. Well, I mean, realistic time travel, uh, when you talk about that in like scientifically plausible fiction, when it comes to time travel, you've got a lot of time travelers that don't want to know what's going to happen because then they're fucking locked in. It's like knowing what's going to happen is almost a form of shackles. Because you can't change it as soon as you know it. So don't fucking tell me. It turns you into Cassandra, basically. Yeah. It's an, inter- it's an interesting concept for a character. I, I really like the whole, even though I, I know everything that's going to happen and has happened and will happen and yada, yada, I'm, I can't change it. I'm just as, as uh, much a victim of time as you are. Just because I know it doesn't change that. No matter how much he may seem like a God to people and how he can do things that no one else can. It's kind of interesting that the one thing he seems to 
keep gravitating back towards and not being good at is love. Mm-hmm. People. Yeah. Yeah, he can't stop himself from being hurt. He can't stop himself from being surprised. And then you have at the end, you know, the final episode, they've got Dr. Manhattan in a bad way, and he gets saved by Asmandius with a pretty clever MacGuffin. I don't know if we need to go into necessarily details of it, but we can if you guys want to. I mean, he doesn't really get saved, though. Well, I I mean, I mean, save the day, I guess, not save Dr. Manhattan. Right. And I, I love the Lady of the Tiger final shot where she is. She sees what he was trying to do and doesn't know if she screwed it up. She may have inherited his power and it doesn't matter. We don't need to know. We know that she had faith in Cal. And that leads me to something that I had a long discussion with Laura about is do we want another season be, or do we want to leave well enough alone? Because as we know, no matter how limited something is or how much of something is put to an end, if there's enough money in it and the studio wants it, they may push for it or make it happen regardless. I don't want another season. We're going to get it whether we want it or not. Probably. Yeah. That's, that's my thing is if, if the writer only wrote one season End it one season. Yeah, I, I think that any attempt to do more would be a cash grab. And this is about as perfect a sequel as you could get to the comic. It erases for me all of the sins committed against the comic by Zack Snyder. It, it stays true to the feeling, the subversiveness of the comic in a different age. It's kind of like any remake that is decades and decades after the original. If it was groundbreaking... It can't be too similar to the original because the original, uh, if it was important at all, affected all pop culture that came after it. So if you do more of the same, you're no longer groundbreaking. You have to go in a completely different direction to preserve your heart. It's like they made Easy Rider 2, which was a bad idea. But to try and remake something like that, it wouldn't. you'd have to do something different because it wouldn't make Wait, sense now. Did they actually do that? Yeah, there's actually an easy writer too. The fuck? Yeah. I felt like I was very nervous going into this because the comic is such a encapsulated thing. And I mentioned this earlier. And I feel like this the series actually pulled off something that I didn't think was possible. And so I kind of feel like it's an encapsulated thing and now it's a complete loop. Like the whole story has a beginning, middle, and an end. Yep. Why? Because I don't need to know if she actually does what she's about to do. But I mean, you know, the the other side of it is they did make Godfather 3. And The Exorcist 3. But that was actually yeah. pretty good. And Bla the whole Blair Witch abortions. Right. And I think they're starting to learn that if you make a flagrant cash grab, you don't even end up getting the cash. Yeah, they mm -hmm. would have to dump a lot of money into this to do it another season. And it's a little less true when you're not talking about having to claim like box office returns. But I mean, there's still marketing behind it. You got to recap all that. It's not just like pay the actors and do the filming and post-production. So I, I think studios, they're starting to catch wise that if you do something just for the money, the audience is going to reject it and you're going to end up losing the money, which was the whole point. And then you have to work twice as hard to get the fans back for the next round. Yeah, I'm I'm 
definitely coming down on the side of I wouldn't want to see any more. I'm not confident it could be done like this again correctly. I mean, I think just because of the nature of the characters, it has to end here. Yeah, like if it was ever to come back, say it comes back and another 25 years passes and it's a completely different set of social issues and it's subversive in another wild direction. Okay, maybe if you get the right combination of actors, directors, and writers, but I can't even envision what that could possibly look like and be any good. Well, you couldn't have envisioned this 20 years ago, so who knows? True. Yeah, like if if uh, as soon as I was disappointed by Snyder's Watchmen, I shrugged and said, well, that wasn't very good, but it was probably about as good as you could do. You're right. I could not have conceived of this. So I can't like shut the door on the possibility that in a number of years they could do it correct again. Time will tell. Look at you sounding all wise and shit. Dr. Manhattan knows if they do it again. Ah. Like, I don't think he does. <laughs> but he can't stop it. Well, he could. I, I don't, yeah, could he see past his own demise? I, well, all of his powers are based on matter and energy. And, like, matter doesn't exist past its own existence. Well, no, as he simply said all the time, you know, death is, you know, you still have the same amount of particles that are alive. That's fair. But in general, he established in this series, like, he doesn't know anything past this point because he dies. Yeah. All right. Well, all right. Is it, is it time for thumbs up, thumbs down? Yeah, I mean, we, we do it even when it's shockingly obvious. Uh, I'll, I'll go first since I'm the, I guess, the only one that could possibly even be thumbs down, but I'm not. I like, I like the comic the graphic novel, whatever you want to call it, despite the fact that it was a little bit harder for me to read, just not being used to that genre. But it was very well written and uh, well illustrated. The movie, meh. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's not a thumbs down, so it's definitely a thumbs up. And then the the TV series, definitely, definitely thumbs up. About the least surprising thing ever, Watchmen is about as high a thumbs up as you can get. The movie is a thumbs down. Maybe not the worst thing I've ever seen, but it's a solid thumbs down for me. And the HBO series is almost as high a thumbs up as the original graphic novel. Well, the graphic novel thumbs up the movie. I know not everybody is a fan, but I I dig it. So I'm giving it a thumbs up and the series definitely thumbs up as well. Thumbs down across the board. I hated it all. Awful stuff. Terrible. The worst. No, thumbs up on the comic. It was genre-defining for me when I was a kid and spread it for the first time. The movie, I'm going to give a thumbs up because it was a damn good try, even though it didn't hit what it, you know, what could have. And the show, yeah, thumbs up. All right, so uh, next week, eh? Ah, we are going to be uh, talking about Huey Lewis and the News. Climbing up Jacob's ladder. Rung by rung. Step by step. If you want to give us a call and let Joel know why that's wrong, give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And if you're looking for our older stuff, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Find us on Spotify and give us a review on either Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. We really appreciate it. Huey Lewis in the news. (laughs) Yeah, buddy. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
He's a fruit pooper. A frooper? A frooper. Yikes. Fruit poops. Gimp's frooping. <laughs> Guess you're going to have to wipe him up then. <laughs> That's what I was going to say, you dick. <laughs>